Beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Today I talk to the founder and owner of A World Without Wine. They are an amazing initiative to support and inspire a life without alcohol. I met Janet through my friend Fiona, who is the photographer in episode 5 of Meet Me in the Field. Fiona is also the founder of Sober and Sexy. She produces amazing calendars of people in recovery from addiction, portraying them intimately and focusing on the solution to addiction. You can find her at soberandsexy.co.za. This is where I first saw Janet, as she was one of Fiona's models in the 2017 calendar. When I asked her to speak to me, she was immediately keen, but it took us a while to meet up as our diaries kept clashing. I'm incredibly happy that we did chat and welcome Janet to the Meet Me in the Field family. I hope you enjoy her path into recovery and her journey to her sense of spirituality. I unfortunately have to apologize for the sound quality of this episode. We recorded it in Janet's study at home. I was far too taken with the aesthetics of the environment to pay attention to the sound. This podcast is supported by the first layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Meet Me in the Field also enjoys the support of African Travel Kid Adventures and Tours, the travel company that will help you to make the unknown your known. Check them out at africantravelkid.com. Sit back and enjoy. Janet, welcome to Meet Me in the Field. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for meeting with me. It's interesting because I always think, what do I know about the person before I do an interview? And I know nothing about you, which makes today really exciting. So I, I have yes. no... Likewise. Yes. <laughs> so what I do know about you is the following. We have a beautiful mutual friend. We do. Whom, we, whom we both love dearly and she put me in touch with you, so I'm very grateful for that. And then I know that you um, was to drop your drawers for... <laughs> <laughs> for a very good cause. Oh yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, for, yes. for, for the sober and sexy calendar. Yes. And then I know that you have an amazing initiative where you help people to live without harm. Yes. That's amazing. So we'll definitely get to that as part of our chat. So let's start at the beginning. You don't sound South African, am I correct? You're correct. Okay, where are you from? Uh, I was born in Oxford in the UK. Okay. And uh, I grew up in the UK. Um, at the age of 18, I, I took myself off to live in the South of France. Oh, totally love. Au pair girl there. It was supposed to be a, a kind of gap between um, you know, college and yeah. between school and university, but I loved it so much down there. I stayed. For about three years. Okay. And then I returned back to London and then I, I, I lived in London for uh, for many years. How do you return from the south of 
France, sunny, beautiful, back to grey yeah. London. It was hard, it was hard because, uh, but uh, you'll tell how old I am now. In those <laughs> days, um, we couldn't work freely in France, that's Brexit. Okay. <laughs> Probably could get better now because of Brexit. But uh, because of that, um, I, I would, the kind of work I was doing, it was, you know, waiting on tourists and restaurants, and whatever, and it, it was fine, but I thought, I'm not going to spend my whole life doing yeah. this. So um, that's why I came back for, for career reasons. And uh, I was thinking about the South African connection the other day, and I was lucky enough, when I came back to the uh, UK, I went to a temp, temp agency and I said, you know, I need some work. So they sent me into the BBC as a temp. And I got on very well there, and they uh, they offered me a permanent job. Oh, wow. uh, and amazingly, it was in the BBC African Service World Service. So it was the most awesome job, and uh, I'd, I'd love to do that job today. But we we worked on a, a daily breakfast show, which was beamed out the whole of Africa. I think it still comes out. Oh, wow. And uh, and this was again to show you how old I am. I remember <laughs> being up all night, and we were. Reporting on the Soweto riots. Oh my god. So that's 76. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, we were very aware of South Africa in the UK. We kind of knew what was going on. I think we knew more than you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. I really do, do think you do know. Because something that I, I felt very ashamed of for a long time in my life until I eventually opened my mouth and shared my shame when I was, was I think up until last year, I didn't know who Nelson Mandela was. We, well, that's the way. That that's the way. It. So, so a friend of mine said, that, well, "Don't feel ashamed because that's yeah. that's what was intended." So you were just a product of it. So I definitely do think that you know far more than I do. And I, I went on a free Nelson Mandela march. Well, and, was, <laughs> and to be honest, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't quite sure who he was, but I just knew that <laughs> the cool people were watching. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I always had this kind of thing, and then when I was married uh, the first time, uh, my husband uh, had relatives in South Africa, but he was still in apartheid, and my husband kept saying, oh, they keep inviting us, why don't we go? I was like, no, no, we can't go, you know, we, we were all told you don't buy apples and you don't bank at Barclays, yes. so, you know, there was quite a pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke with another lady a few weeks ago, she is, why did I call her on the podcast? Um, they... English South African, no, English Scottish South African Australian. Oh, and she, wow. she said the same thing. We were not allowed to buy Granny Smith apples. Yeah. And this all they cut cables. I can't buy this one. Janet, did you grow up with religion or spirituality or spirituality? Well, my parents uh, were Church of England. Okay. So I remember going to Sunday school and Go to church on Sundays. And amazingly, I was confirmed. I remember the white dress, <laughs> the white prayer book, and having to study and, and being with masses of other little girls in these funny dresses. And it was all a bit strange. And it was just something that I did because my, my parents wanted me to, but the, they weren't particularly religious. It was more like a social thing. They okay. go to church and see their friends. So, and then when I was 12 or 13, I, I kind of announced to them I didn't really want to go to church anymore. And I was a bit tired and could have had a lean and schoolwork to do. And I just managed to um, to escape from, from that. And I think really from that moment onwards, you know, I never really 
thought about religion apart from in a rather negative way because I do believe it causes many wars and, you know, the organised religion yeah. and it's the opiate of the masses and I just don't like the thought of being controlled. You know. So religion and me, we just, you know, so it doesn't not for really each other. With you at all. No. So, at what age did you get confirmed in your church? 11, 12. That's young, man. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. 17, I think, the, the, the year you turned 70, which no, I no, also no, did, but it just... wasn't. Like yeah. I, was, I was little. I remember that they talked about, you know, the body and the blood of Christ. And, uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I felt the same. <laughs> well, you see, smart. <laughs> this, yeah. and, so you went back to the UK and you studied? Or... I didn't study until I was much more mature. <laughs> so obviously, I, I had this big gap when I should have been at university. But I came back, and you know, the parents by that time were, well, you know, you want to live in France. And now I sort yourself out here yeah. independent. So uh, that's why I started working. And I had this lovely kind of time at the BBC. And to be honest, I would have loved to stay there. But I applied for a job as a producer over and over again. And and I was a producer assistant, and to be honest, I was producing the program myself. You know, I really knew exactly what I was doing. I yeah. loved it. And I was good at it. But because, you know, the, the glass ceiling and the women, you know, yeah. in those days, not only was I female, all the producers were men, but I hadn't even been to Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> and I, I hadn't even been to any university. And this is the BBC. Exactly. <laughs> so I was such a kind of outcast when you think about you what, what cheek you've got? I know. <laughs> I thought, but I can do this job. I would, yeah. I would do it. That's you know, not the point. So, so I got really angry about that in the end. So I quit, and then and then I actually got married for the first time. By that time, I was. Oh, do we talk about interweave that sorry tale as well? Because <laughs> I was thinking about it. South of France. Why? Mm. Yeah, and I, I was probably a little bit too young to have gone out there, completely alone. You know? And uh, I, I really got into the party scene and used to drink far too much and party far too hard. Um, but then I came back and got my, my lovely job. So I was kind of happy, but I was living in central London with three other girls. We had our beautiful flat that we shared, and it was party central, basically. Oh, it sounded big. It was. Uh, but we drank too much, a lot. And I even had a wake-up call when I was about 25 in that some house out with some guy that I really liked, and he turned around and finished the relationship. So I was distraught. And I went back, and there were a couple of flatmates at home, and I said, oh. And they said, oh, you know, don't worry, there's plenty of other fish in the sea, like there are when you're 25. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they got the wine out, of course. And, and all I remember is, you know, settling down to, to drink, uh, to have a heavy evening there. And the next morning I woke up in hospital. And what had happened is, uh, obviously I have no idea, complete blackout. My first major blackout. Because they um, they explained to me that after, uh, at about midnight, when I had a lot of drink, I announced that I was going to go to bed. And then I went to have a bath, because I always had a bath before I went to bed. And apparently I'd locked the door, and then they couldn't rouse me, you know, oh, and they started really panicking. And, and they called the emergency services, came and broke the door down. And I was, you know, unconscious, really. I could easily have crammed. So they oh, took me out to hospital. 
there was a psychiatrist next to my bed in the morning saying, why did you try and kill yourself? I was going, I didn't know, I was upset. <laughs> it was an accident. <laughs> Rather than thinking, mm, you know, maybe I need to get a bit of help or, or think about my drinking. We, we just turned it into a joke, you know. It's, oh, Janet, she's such a legend. Yeah. You know, did you hear what happened to her in our bath? And we just laughed, you know, and it was a story. It's amazing at that age. I call it the arrogance of youth. Yeah. We just don't connect with mortality and those type of things. That's, of course, a big problem with with teenage drinking and, and, and drugging is yeah. the fact that we can't tell them that you might die. Yeah. It just doesn't resonate with them at the level we, we would like it to resonate. Yeah. Meanwhile, so, my closest friends, her 20 year old daughter drowned in her bath. Oh, she my was goodness. Taking kids and, uh, well, that's true. And that could easily happen. Yeah. So, that was a big wake up call. So, 25, young hot girl in cold London. Um, <laughs> that was really <laughs> Got married. And he was a heavy drinker as well. So, it's so amazing how we attract him. Yeah. <laughs> we turned it. He was in the circle. So yeah, we, you know, it was just, we thought we, we were living the life, really working hard, playing hard. We both had good jobs, we worked hard, but we would go to the supermarket on Saturday and buy a bottle of Jack Daniels and plenty of wine, but all stash, you know, for the week. Um, I, I can't remember a day without drinking and we'd have dinner parties that would go on until three o'clock in the morning and we just thought, you know, this is fabulous. And it was, to be honest. <laughs> That's really so familiar. Yes. And, <laughs> um, I, got, I had my son <laughs> when I was 30. So I, was, I managed to stop drinking for nine months, thank God. So you did? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how you... Well, I think there's kind of chemical things going on and I remember not yeah. really feeling the urge. Uh, but it was a long nine months, you know. You couldn't wait to wet the baby's head with yeah. a glass of champagne <laughs> or nine, you know. So just clicked straight back into drinking a lot. Was the public transport infrastructure in London already good those days that you could taxi, you could bus, you could train, you could if it's yeah. so, so not like South like Africa where we had those three o'clock dinner parties and then I will never forget how my husband and I would say to your friends, Are you okay to drive? Uh, okay, bye. <laughs> Before they could maybe have to sleep over, we just shoved them out the door. I must say it's a bridge hearing the stories you know, on, on my workshop, I'm, I'm amazed by how, how much drinking and driving goes yeah. on. <laughs> I remember one morning as we watched one guy bumping a car as he reversed and bumping another car as he tried for to get out of the parking area. Yeah. We didn't yeah. contemplate storming out and say to no condition to drive. We're just watching bumping cars and drive off. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's because you didn't have public transport. Yeah. I mean, we did, plus it was so, you know, we were so brainwashed by the media and you must always put on your seatbelt uh, and you must never drink and drive and there were police stopping people all the yeah. time whereas here <laughs> yeah. so at that stage of your life you were living that high life having fun where was the spirit in those days except, except in the pot or was that the only place <laughs> <what? laughs> JD I mean it just wasn't on my radar you just not no. and I had no friends that you know gave any of that moment of thought we would because remember I grew up and the Northern Ireland thing was going on yes. so the troubles and that was all about religion and then you know you get the terrorism so it's it's always oh religion you know it's just causing so much 
destruction. So I was in that kind of yeah. school for the about, you know, dogma. Yes. I mean, why should anybody try and inflict their religion on anybody else? Yeah, I heard something in the next couple. Maybe your religion requires of you to kill somebody, you should kind of re-look at yeah. exactly what, they, what, yeah. what you think. <laughs> okay, so what happens next? Uh, right, so there I am, in my 30s, uh, married to this heavy drinking guy, uh, my lovely son growing up nicely. And then I had a midlife crisis and I ran off with a Frenchman. Oh, what? <laughs> the French connection came back to him? Yeah, yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I had a job, because I, obviously I speak French, and uh, I got this job where you know, I spoke, uh, I used my French, and the, uh, the CEO that was French, so you know, we, we got on rather well. And um, yeah, I, I left my husband. Um, but, um, you know, we were definitely an item. And after him getting sent back to Paris and then back again, there was a lot of kind of geographical angst going on. <laughs> but eventually we got together and we got married. Uh, but his attitude to drinking was very different to my English husband. Uh, the French have, have a different attitude. They don't go out to get hammered like yeah. us Brits. You know, they go out to maybe have a glass or two of very good wine you know, they just don't think, and that they moderate without Abuse even thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. So, well, I mean, the first time he realised, I think what he'd taken on is we were in Barbados, you know, having a lovely holiday, and I was, I think it was the first evening, and I was so excited to be in one of my favourite places, sitting together a lot with this man that was crazy about, and I was sitting on a bar stool, and the way he tells it is he just turned around to say something to me, and I was on the run punches, and I very elegantly just slid onto the sand. You know, I was just lying there. Like, oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> so you know, that's uh, it's so English. You don't even make a noise when you drop. <laughs> you just drop quietly. Oh, <laughs> coming out again. So that was um, not cool in his eyes, and we, we started having arguments about my drinking, basically. And so I tried and. Um, there began, as I call it, my decade of moderation because I really tried. You know, and I, I would uh, I looked up how much you could drink uh, in a week without harming your health, and I discovered it was one and a half bottles a week of wine. And I was slightly disconcerted because I would put that away in an evening without even thinking about it. So little, but I would try. You know, and I would write down my units, and I would think, oh God, it's Wednesday, and um, you know. Going, I've still got three nights to go out this week. What am I going to drink? Kind of thing. But I really tried. And I would, by kind of sheer willpower, I've managed to hold it all together for a few weeks and not go over the top. And then one night, just out of nowhere, you know, I'd have to get completely mm. off my face and it would all start again and I'd be a bit row. So it was miserable. And then I had another wake up call. Um, which was breast cancer, oh, no. and now there's there's real evidence that there is a link between alcohol and breast cancer. So I had sexually chemotherapy, you know, oh. a really really rough year because of that. At what age is this? If I may be that personal. Yes, we've, we've fast forwarded quite a long way actually. I'm now 55 with breast cancer, but still drinking because then I sort of getting depressed and thinking, well, I'm going to die anyway, so yeah. I might as well drink, and oh, poor me, having to go through all this. Pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> that was me. 
So yeah, we uh, got through, and you know, my husband hung in there in spite of everything. And then we can fast forward even more to my early 60s when I was um, on a weekend away with a, a gang of friends. Wait, wait, wait. So you were over 60? I'm 66. Oh my word. <laughs> you don't look at it all. I look good. Oh. Yes, I am on quite good. It's um, amazing how alcohol, so alcohol is a preservative. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. It's clear. <laughs> I've got this slide that I use in my workshop and I love it and it says um, once once you're a pickle you can't go back to being a pickle. <laughs> and I now look at the people in my workshops and I'm going pickle, pickle, pickle. Because <laughs> once your once your drinking's reached a certain level, I truly believe you can never moderate. Yeah. And I, I was at that a long time ago. So um, So we fast forward to Yeah, we do we go into my third wake up call as I call it, but this one worked. I finally woke up just in time. And uh, yeah, it was a beautiful house in Paternoster, 10 people, all boozy crowd, apart from my husband, who was going, oh, this lot. <laughs> so this is still the French husband now? Yeah, yeah, he's okay. still around. Oh, cool. Yes. Oh, wow. Beautiful house. We started on the bubbly at breakfast, one of those kind of weekends. Next morning, <laughs> I can't remember very much. It was the day before. Shocking headache, obviously, um, trying to pretend I feel fine. British stiff up a lip at breakfast. I say in my chirpy voice, oh, let's go for a walk to that house I've heard about. I think it belongs to the Woolwich chairman and he rents it out sometimes. Let's check it out. And, and they all kind of looked at me and they said, um, mm, Janet, we did that yesterday and you were with us. Oi. So I'd had a walking, talking blackout, and I researched that a bit, and I discovered that it means that your your brain is so soaked in alcohol that uh, it's not that you forget stuff; it's that you can't actually make memories in the first place. Is that what happened? Because yeah. So for you, that was an awake. So you started looking on the internet. What? Yeah. Well, the next morning, I said to poor French husband, "I said that's it. I'm done. I'm not drinking again." And he did. Look at me, quite an interesting way, because I've never said that before. Okay. I'd always said, I'm going to cut down, I'm going to cut down, because I thought I cannot live without alcohol. Yeah. How dull life is going to be, exactly. how boring, and I don't want this kind of boring <laughs> life with no alcohol. I can't do it, but I, I can control it, that's what I was always aiming for. But I decided that I would stop completely, and if I had to stay home all the time and have a very quiet life, then fine, you know, mm. the party was over that I had that yeah. kind of conversation with myself. So I was prepared to have a very quiet life. And that, that very day that I announced that, <laughs> he then said, do you remember we're going to a party tonight? Uh... But the party um, was a local party, a lovely couple that we've known for a while, and they're both alcoholics, and neither of them drink. And they've got a beautiful house, and they, they have, you know, alcohol everywhere, lots of friends, and I remember looking at them and thinking, if they can do it, you know, they're not miserable staying yeah. home alone in the dark every night, so it is possible, and they inspired me. And then, as you say, on the internet, I need help, how can I, because I knew I couldn't do it alone. So I thought about AA, and I went to a couple of meetings, but, you know, the I think the answer that I had towards religion slipped in a bit, you know, the kind of prayers and holding hands. <laughs> Freaked out a little bit. Yeah, I really respect AA and I think they've helped millions of people, but it, it 
maybe I went to the wrong meeting, but it just didn't really resonate with me. And then I thought, really have. And then I thought, well, I think they lock you away in that booth for three weeks. I know I can survive that. But then what do you do? Yeah. I just couldn't imagine coming out and not drinking. And eventually I found a workshop in London, a one-day workshop. So I went to that. From South Africa, you flew to London? Mm. Okay. I was that desperate. Wow. No. <laughs> I was determined. And when I am quite a strong person, once I make my mind up, yeah. you know, I just wish that I'd made up my mind at 25 or <laughs> 63. But but early. We got there in the end. <laughs> so, yeah. Rather late than nearer. <laughs> so I went to this workshop, and to be honest, it wasn't that good because um, it was run by a nurse. And she actually sat there with notes reading. <laughs> she was lovely. But she was a nurse, she wasn't a trainer or facilitator. So she read um, from her notes um, for most of the day. And I'll always remember because it was a baking hot day in London, which is very unusual. <laughs> but what we all do in London when the sun comes out, of course, is go for a drink. And we were in this tiny hot little room and there was a big courtyard outside and it was a pub but it was full of people getting absolutely trashed. Oh no! So we were sitting there listening hey, to all the damage, the alcohol does. <laughs> but I, I left that day with two new things, you know, first of all new knowledge because to be honest I didn't realise how damaging it was. And secondly, I connected with some people there because unlike AA, which was quite male-oriented in meetings I went to, yeah. and these guys, they really seem to have lost a lot, you know, everything in some cases, like their marriage, their jobs. And I wasn't there yet, so I was probably on the way there, but I wasn't there yet, so I couldn't quite relate to them. But this one in London, it was mostly women, and they were mostly women like me, with families and good jobs and holding them oh, all together, yeah. just... So I could relate to them and we swapped numbers and okay. because of them I managed to stay on track. So I gave up that day and, uh, well no, I, I was already a few weeks sober because I gave up the day after the, um, the pattern. So that was the last drink, the yeah. day you said, I'm yeah. not drinking anymore. Yeah. Wow. And that's uh, nearly three years ago, it's my three year anniversary on May the 23rd. Oh, fabulous. So uh, so that was uh, was great, and then I and I also started blogging the day that I stopped drinking. So I had this little blog thing going on, which I called World Without Wine. And then I got back from London, and I thought my background is training and development because I didn't talk to you about my job, but no. I um, I was in the human resources field, and I, I ended up HR director of Christie's Auction House in oh. London, which was a fabulous job. So I had a really nice, interesting career. And I, I designed and facilitated dozens of workshops, hundreds of workshops, probably in my my career. So I thought, hmm, I thought I think I could actually design and run something even better than the one yeah. that I've been on. So, so that's what I did, and I and my blog kind of morphed into this website now. And now I run these workshops, and we run the next one in May is going to be number twenty-three. Oh, so we had about three hundred people through. That's fantastic. And we're going to do one in Singapore and one in London. So we're How the hell did that happen? <laughs> well, the Singapore is quite a good story, actually. A lovely British lady came to our workshop in Cape Town. And after that, I coached her because I do recovery coaching. Okay. I'm trained to do that. And in the coaching, one day she came to me and she said, Oh, um, my company, she was a senior executive in a big corporate. 
she said that they're moving me from Cape Town to Singapore and I don't know anybody there, I'm going to fall back in with the expats and it's all going to start again. How can we stop this happening? So we decided uh, that she would start work with that one in Singapore. Okay. So she's been there a few months now and she's been networking and I'm going out there to stay with her and we fix this date and she's got a lovely big apartment so we're going to try and gather, you know, what, 15 yeah. people and run the first one there. And if it all works out well, then she'll carry on running. Yeah. And likewise, the one in London, this is going to be amazing because I've teamed up with a, an author um, called Claire Cooley, and she's uh, just written a, a best selling book called The Sober Diaries. Oh, wow. And I've connected with her online, you know, like you do on Twitter or whatever. And, we, you know, we get on like a house on fire because very similar kind of story. So she's. Um, She's going to facilitate my first London workshop with me. How so she's going to tell her followers. And, and then hopefully, if that all works out, she'll carry on running the method there. So That's excellent. Going to Marshall. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> it's kind of happening it's, organically. It's not that no. I sat down. I was looking at my one my year plan that I did in January. And there's nothing about being international in that. But as these opportunities present themselves, it feels rude not to yeah. take them up. So we're just trying that. But that's something I must say that happened for me as well, is things happen. Mm. And because I don't have a nine-to-five job, I'm able to go there, to, to, to follow, to, yes. to, to see yes. Where, yes. where's this road taking me. And I had this conversation with somebody earlier this morning where I just kind of get a gut feel, should I do this or not? I'm currently getting involved in a very exciting tourism thing around recovery. So where do we find World Without Wine? Worldwithoutwine.com. Okay, www.worldwithoutwine.com. So we run workshops and we do recovery coaching and we offer online support and we've just launched a membership section of the website where there's a chat room and uh, people can, we have our own doctor, and ask the doctor questions oh, about excellent. their alcohol use in confidence. You know how yeah. when you go to a doctor, everybody lies about how much you drink. <laughs> and doctors, you know, they never talk, they don't like to be about alcohol, basically. So it's lovely that we've got somebody yeah. with an interest in alcohol related. The day that I went for ask for help, we ended up with our doctor. And he said to me, very keen. I asked him one ago how much you drank and you had. <laughs> Well, obviously, yes. Yeah, it doesn't everybody. Surely it doesn't. <laughs> you should have. I mean, with my heart rate and my cholesterol and my all the vitals were just absolutely... The fact that I'm alive today yeah. is an absolute miracle. Yeah. My feeling is you should have seen to me kind of, I think you're lying. Yeah. <laughs> with, with what I'm seeing and what yeah. you're telling me, yeah. they don't match. Yeah. I was so desperate for help that they said I possibly would have felt comfortable to say, I need help. But they don't say, you know, you don't just, I didn't know. I just did not know where to find out and how to find out. So, World Without One, how do you market yourself? How do people find World Without One? How do you? Well, word of mouth a lot. You know, we've now had more than 300 people on the workshops. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And I do Facebook ads, but um, UCBS McKaiser, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, I follow you on Twitter. Yeah. So too. I saw you were on the show. Oh, you really lost yes. me. I've been on this show six times. Oh, I see. Yes. So as things stand at the moment, 
Janet's been sober for nearly three years, which is excellent. Sounds like you're quite passionate about what you do. Yeah. I admit, these days, I work harder at this than I ever did at the corporate. Really? Right. And when I came to South Africa, um, yeah, I didn't tell you how we came here. No, I want to know that. Because um, we came on holiday. We were both in London, working away, really tired, and it was freezing as ever. And I said, I want to go to a spa at Christmas, and I want it. I want heat, I want sunshine, because there was lots of sunshine. So, you know, this was, yeah, whatever. And it's, it, was, it was that long ago, I remember I had a brochure rather than a website. I think oh, I had, really? had a brochure in my, web, in my briefcase, and it was just sitting there getting all crumpled. Sunny South Africa. But I'd already seen this place in Stellenbosch called the Hydra. Ah, okay. And one of my uh, colleagues at work, was South African, so I said, oh, have you heard of Stellenbosch? And she said, oh, that's nice, you know, you should go. So uh, after a few weeks of procrastination, I thought, oh, and we looked at the prices and it, was, it seemed feasible. I mean, it's a hell of a long way to go for a, a spa break. Yes, <laughs> we booked it, we booked 10 days, and then uh, we went to the spa and it was lovely. And then we had a day when there was no treatment, so we got a driver and we drove around and we had a look around and... Uh, we ended up um, in Gordon's Bay, you know, with the little yacht up there. Mm-hmm. It was husband was a sailor, so we okay. looked at that. And then it happened to be opposite Palm Golding, so okay. we had to stroll in there. Reached us all? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's quite recent, isn't it? So we looked at um, some of the houses and did the pounds to random. We're going, what? <laughs> this is cheap. Absolutely, <laughs> coming from London. Yes, exactly. Oh, God. And then... Uh, we started talking to a nice lady in there and she said, oh, why don't you let me come and pick you up tomorrow and I'll show you the South African lifestyle, you know, because we said, well, we're not looking yeah. to buy, we're just intellectual interest. So she ended up taking us around the, the tent house that we saw, we bought. Oh, wow. In that area? Yeah, yeah. So oh, we wow, bought it as a holiday home. Yeah. And then we did the back and forth for a while and then we thought, oh, why, why are we keep going back to London? Because we were at the stage where we could retire anyway. So we retired and moved here and got permanent residency. Retired? Yeah, retired. But ever since I've retired, I just worked. <laughs> if this is retirement, then what the hell? Then something's been lying to you all along. Before I started all this, I was um, I had my own HR consultancy for 10 years. Good and really. that was great. You know, yeah. It did really well. But I had to move from Gordon's Bay because being on the end too, every yeah. day was not my idea of fun. I thought, this is not retirement. So you were a highly functional alcoholic. Oh, highly, yes, yeah, because I was I was so firmly in denial that I wasn't that I would go to work with the most terrible hangovers. Uh, there was no way I would not go to work, mm. you see, so it was my way of staying in control. Um, in in AA and all those type of things, we need God mm. in inverted commas. Did you have a God inverted commas experience? No, no experience, but I would say uh, I am more kind of spiritual these days. I mean, I've always done yoga all my life and, and now, you know, I still do yoga. So with that, along comes, you know, a bit of meditation. So one kind of gets drawn into that. But I, I kind of believe I was, you know, knowing that you'd ask me these kind of questions, I was thinking, <laughs> oh, what do I believe then? And I actually believe in um, helping people. And even in my career, you know, I was in a hard-nosed corporates all my life, but I was in human resources and 
I was always the one running training courses and helping people with their careers. Oh, know, right. Whereas I had colleagues that spend their life on spreadsheets. You know, how can we cut heads here and save yeah. money kind of thing? So HR can be soft or hard. Yes. I was always on the soft side. Yeah, I mean, and I, I love helping people. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. Because it brings all the skills that uh, I acquired through all that long corporate career together. You know, I learned to, to write and creative writing, so I write. You know, I facilitate and design workshops. And I was an executive coach when I was working. I did a lot of studies oh, wow. to be an executive coaching. You know, coaching CEOs, that's what I did when yeah. I got here. And uh, then I went on a, I did a course, an online course with Brits actually, yeah. To um, transfer my skills, get to recovery coaching. So everything that I know about, it's all yeah. kind of come together in a way that I can help people. And I'm even learning new stuff, which is the marketing side. Yeah, I never had anything to do with marketing. And uh, I came across a beautiful quote the other day. Ah, am I allowed? Yes, yes, please. And I, and I do kind of live by this quote. It's by Viktor Frankl. And you probably know it's very well known. But life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, which is what I used to believe. Yes. I just thought we were. <laughs> uh, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught. I mean, I was a bit into power particularly, but I think a lot of men are. Uh, but it's a quest for meaning. The greatest task for any person is to find meaning in his or her life. Um, and I actually have found meaning. Know, because of this journey yeah. and I think if I hadn't been an alcoholic and got myself out of that uh, I wouldn't have been able to help people like I can now because it's so important that you can relate to the person that's coaching you Absolutely. or running the workshop so yeah I feel that uh, you know in, in my 60s I've found real meaning in my life and for me that's the closest you know that coming to spirituality what I found interesting in a way is even though I found my recovery through the fellowship, through AA in a various others for my sins, that even though the structured AA didn't work for you, it sounds as if the principles are, are, are there, the yes. helping people, the. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm at step 12 all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's like you've moved down from step 1 to step 12, here I am. <laughs> and also, the, I think of one of the promises that. You know, we will neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door of it. Mm. We, I came, truly came to believe that I had to walk all the curves of the path of life to mm. experience what yeah. I had to experience to yes. bring me to where I am today. Because without those, I would not have had, I would not have been as equipped as I am today to, to do what I'm doing. No. And it sounds like that's exactly the, the same. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm a great fan of Russell Brand, and uh, he says that us addicts um, are the lucky ones because we've kind of faced that wall mm. and we've been broken down and we've built ourselves up in a, in a different way. And I, think that's I love that as well. How has life changed for you over the past three years? Hugely. Yes. No, I feel like a different person, actually. I feel, uh, you know, before my life was, was full of highs and lows. You know, I was either <laughs> out of a bit partying or I was depressed and down and regretting. But these days I'm, I'm kind of calm. And I must admit, the first year for me was very tough. 
because if you think how long you know I've been drinking yeah. for, it took me a long time to get to kind of where where I am now. But the first year was a tough year, and I remember feeling my first kind of positive benefit was a calmness, and I would. But that calmness could all some days it would turn into a flatness, you know, yes. a void. It's like, well, is this it? You know, what? what's happened, the party's over, I'm just sitting here, which is why for me the world without wine has been such a salvation, mm. you know, it's been something to keep me busy, keep me learning keep me connecting with people on the yeah. same path, so that's been great, but the first year was a bit flat and then finally you know, I got my uh, my groove back as we used to say in the 1970s but yeah um, I think we get addicted to the chaos in the world yeah yeah. And I remember so early recovery, I said to me, I was in a tertiary house and the owner on Saturday mornings came to visit us and do a group. Sorry. And in one group, he asked, he asked me how I'm doing. And I said, I'm doing well, but I'm, honestly, I'm, I miss the adrenaline mm. rush of being naughty. <laughs> and he said, well, go be naughty, but go be naughty within a legal framework, something that you're not used to. But so I remember so I So what did you do? I went skinny dipping on a Friday night. You went what? Skinny dipping. Oh, skinny dipping. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. What's this? so cold. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my I think for me, that virtually entailed running naked into the sea up to my ankles. That's <laughs> <laughs> as far as I would go. And um, it's definitely a new, a new way of, of living. So how does your husband now experience you? Oh, he's thrilled. Yeah, he's he's really pleased. Um, uh, you know, he said that his his life's improved many times over, and he's you know I think he's glad he's lucky to have because you know, it wasn't easy sometimes for him. But yeah, he's um, he's happy. So our relationship is much better. You know, much closer to him yeah. now for obvious reasons. We don't have these endless arguments about the same thing, which is so over and over and over again. And I'm actually closer to my son because. He never used to give me a hard time really about my drinking, apart one or once or twice and say, Oh mum, you know, you're a bit over the top last night. That was a bit embarrassing kind of thing, but not not really heavy. But since I've been sober, he keeps telling me over and going, he's so proud of me and he loves, you know, to see me this way. But talking about fun, I just read this this awesome book, you should you should have a look at it. It's called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. Oh. And it's by a British lady. We're all British us drinkers that write these books. I've got to write my book next, I suppose. And she she's lovely. She's a journalist, you know, the usual story about the journalists going on all their freebies and getting wasted. But anyway, she's also in about her third year of sobriety. And she was quite big on nightclubs and whatever, which I, I was in my day, obviously, not <laughs> But she she was her whole life revolved around she was either working or she was clubbing. And now that she's sober, she she's discovered what she calls day fun, you know, and that there is fun in the day. And for me, walking the promenade is mm. a spiritual experience. Yeah. You know? and I just love the beauty here in Cape Town. I mean, I fell in love with Cape Town at first sight, mm. you know, just the, the sheer <laughs> light and the beauty yeah. and everything compared with London. So, yeah, it's... Um, you know, her uh, her book, I thought that title it just about sums up how I feel. And I read a great book recently by Susan Cain called... Did um, you get down to read? Sorry to interrupt you um, so quickly. At night. <laughs> I read on my keyboard <laughs> till two o'clock in the morning. 
Oops. Yeah, this book is great. Jesus and Caden, The Power of Quiet, it's called. Okay. And it explains that the the population of the world is kind of divided 50-50, more or less, uh, into introverts and extroverts. But because of our corporate careers and our social lives, we're all under a bit of pressure to become extroverts, yes. and that's why we drink. And I thought that's so interesting. That's why it's happened. Yeah. You know, just, just to cope. But drink yourself interesting. Yeah. yeah. Or when I ask people why they want to get sober when they come along to a workshop, and one lady, it's still my favourite, she said, darling, she was a British one, she said, I drink to make other people interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. <laughs> Straight enough, back to fun. Is yes. I'm, I'm loving your little courtyard outside. Yeah. Um, and for me, if I think of fun, I think of taking a book and sitting right there yeah. and reading. Yeah. So the courtyard, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing white, grey and a lot of green. Yes. And it just says tranquility. It says calm. So all I want to do is grab my book and go sit on one of those chairs and spend the afternoon. Do you do that? Yeah. Do you take that well, down? Yes. It's, it's, it's getting more and more difficult, but yes. Yeah. You might as well say, relax. Oh, yes, and I've got that trampling because, you know, I can spend eight hours on the computer without taking a breath through. Wow. But, but some might have said, jump, jump. <laughs> so I go and I jump and I'll think you all the time. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is fantastic. Janet, thank you so much. I really appreciate taking time out of your Saturday morning to chat me. I just love hearing about people's journeys. It was really yeah. excellent to hear yours. I see a very clear path that you were walking in corporate. Well, yeah. on this road, you were, you were just kind of lost, mm. even though you kind of knew where you were going. Mm. Professionally and all those type of things, but spiritually you kind of not that was not there. No. And now standing still mm. through world without wine, you, you you found your purpose, and in that purpose you live out your spirituality, which is mm. excellent. And I very much believe in uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And I'm connecting so well with so many people these days. And have you seen the TED uh, the TED talk by Johan Hari? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I love, love that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Janet, thank you so much. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Thank you. I am a 12-step junkie and find it difficult to believe that people get clean and sober and stay that way without working these steps. Janet is a living example of someone who has found an alternative that is working for her and many of her workshop attendees. A World Without Wine offers workshops, recovery coaching, online support, social events and support groups. They aim to put people who are trying to cut down or quit alcohol into a safe and protected space, while encouraging people to see alcohol-free living as an inspirational and positive life choice. I can surely live with that and, having met Janet and heard about the journey, I'm very excited to hear how this initiative is going international with the prospect of helping many more people. As Janet mentions, her spirituality is helping people and I love hearing that. What better purpose can we have in life? You can find A World Without Wine at worldwithoutwine.com If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at 
www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za forward slash or on Twitter at at Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank you for listening. Be safe. Mm-hmm.